I appreciate Mike reading the citation of Staff Sergeant Bacon. Uh, he truly was an extraordinary man, an extraordinary American, a uh, tremendous patriot. Uh, he probably is happy to be in the presence of his Lord today and not have to uh, watch the disintegration of our military as we're more concerned with using the right pronouns than we are teaching men how to kill the enemy. At any rate, it is an honor to be here. I want to thank Pastor Navas again and the whole church for allowing us to come back. We consider it a great honor. We never take for granted the opportunity to meet with God's people and teach the word. And uh, we pray that this will be a blessing to you. I don't often do it, but I feel from time to time that it's necessary to remind everyone that when something like this goes on, it's really the courtesy of many, many, many people, unknown and unsung people behind the scenes. You've got ladies working here preparing food and providing wonderfully for us. No doubt there are folks that are working in other areas that are making it possible. People have traveled miles and miles to come here. Certainly I uh, often fail to give recognition to our team. Uh, we would not be doing uh, conferences if it were not the idea of Colonel Ken Curcio, who is the uh, head of our board. And it was his idea to start doing this some 15 years ago. Uh, it's kind of ballooned and, and almost run away with us sometimes, but uh, without him, we would not be doing this. His wife, Sharon, uh, heads up a team that does the editing, the notes that you have. If you picked up a set of notes back on the table, uh, you have 20, how many? 23 pages, 22 pages of notes on the little book of Second Peter. And in all honesty, you could study these notes for months to come. They really barely scratch the surface of this amazing book. But Sharon and her team uh, do the editing so that when this comes out in its final form, people will actually think that I know what I'm talking about. You saw books on the back table. Those books are all free. We don't sell anything. We never request uh, any kind of... Uh, financial response for anything that we do because we believe that if God wants to bless the ministry, he's going to provide for it. And the day that he stops providing is the day we're going to shut it down. So those books are yours courtesy of many, many people around the country who give oftentimes very sacrificially in order to keep the ministry going. And again, unknown and unsung people. We are going to be studying the amazing book of 2 Peter. Uh, it is an unusual book in many ways. It is the most controversial book in the New Testament from the standpoint of the author. You would be surprised how many so-called scholars have come out and said Peter could not possibly have written this book. Well, unfortunately, they're all wrong. But there have been many, many attacks against the authorship of the book of 2 Peter. And then we run into the troubles that we'll see tomorrow in 2 Peter chapter 2, which is one of the most disputed and considered by many scholars and commentators the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament 
to interpret accurately. But don't worry, you're going to get the accurate interpretation. So it is an interesting book. It's a book that has many twists and turns uh, along the way, and I do hope that it will be a rich blessing for you. We're going to try to get through chapter one in our two sessions tonight. <clears throat> Believe me, I'm not going to be able to cover all the things that are in the notes. There's simply too much information that is there, but I will try to highlight enough that hopefully you will walk away with an understanding of 2 Peter chapter 1 tonight. Before we begin, it's of course absolutely essential that we go to the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on our time together. Unless God the Holy Spirit takes control of my mind and my mouth, and unless he opens the doors of your minds and your hearts, we are here in vain. And so we're asking that the Spirit of God would illumine us regarding the Word of God so that the Son of God receives all the glory. So if you would, join me at the throne of God's grace. Our Heavenly Father and our God, we are here tonight waiting, anticipating, relishing the opportunity that we have to open your word, to be guided by your spirit, and to have our eyes turned away from the disaster that is life in this country today, to be turned away from the rampant evil that is encroaching into every area of our life, to take the difficulties, the troubles, the trials, to lay them all aside and to sit at the feet of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you know how inadequate I feel. I never stand before a group of your people without a great weight on my shoulders of the awesome responsibility that it is to represent a holy God and a perfect Savior through a very imperfect man. May God the Holy Spirit overcome all human frailty, both as I speak and as these dear people listen and let the work that you have brought us here be accomplished by the power that you alone can exert. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your people. May God bless us in this hour, this very dark and difficult hour of human history, that we will be a light shining in a dark place, and that we will show in the midst of sin, sorrow, and suffering, the joy of the Lord, the love of the Spirit, and the hope that we have in Christ. For we ask it in his precious name, amen. <clears throat> Our topic is the Christian warrior. There are three areas of the Christian warrior that we're going to look at. We're going to look at his calling, we're going to look at his combat, and then we're going to look at his coronation. And this is really the essential outline of the book of 2 Peter. But our key verses, and I should have had these at the top of your notes, the key verses are 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. So if you would look there for a moment, we have a little bit of preparation to do uh, before we actually get into uh, the, launching into the first chapter. In verse 10, Peter says, therefore, brethren, and we'll find out why the word therefore is there. But he says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. If this book doesn't spur you and I to action, then we have failed. 
be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. How do we do that? We're going to find out. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is our goal. Chapter 1, make your call and election sure. That is the theme of chapter 1. Chapter 2, if you do these things, you will never stumble. We are going to see the cause of much stumbling in chapter 2. And chapter 3, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom. In other words... It is possible for you and I, based on our response to the Word of God, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and our willingness to walk by the power of the Spirit to prepare for ourselves an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. The idea of an abundant entrance, uh, abundant in the English really doesn't carry across the idea of a if we put it in human terms, a super rich entry into the kingdom of God. That's the coronation. That's the idea of the crown. So the Christian war warrior has a calling. What is that calling and how do we make it sure? The Christian warrior has a combat. That combat is that the enemy wants to make you stumble. And he is going to use deception in order to do it. And it used to be that we only had to worry about cults sowing division and strife through false doctrine. Now we have to worry about most churches, or maybe I should say many churches being gracious. We also have to re, uh, be concerned about our very own government. Whether you're aware of it or not, our government is completely dedicated to the idea of sowing false doctrine false doctrine contrary to the Word of God. And you and I live in a time where right is wrong and wrong is right. Good is evil and evil is good. And if you and I choose to stand for what is good, somewhere along the line, it's probably going to cost us. And we have to be prepared and willing to pay that price. So since our first chapter is about making our calling and election sure, we better figure out what calling and election means and how do we define the terms and how do they relate to us and how can we understand the plan of God for our life. So I want to turn to four passages of Scripture before we move into the actual study of 2 Peter. Go with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 helps us to begin to define the idea of election. I'm sure that there's no one here that has not heard the idea of election. And it's probably a term that may intimidate you, may make you uncomfortable, uh, may confuse you, uh, because you probably heard all kinds of things about election that are false. So we're going to look at the idea of election because we can't make something sure that we don't know what it is. We have to have a clear and accurate understanding of what it means to be one of the elect. All right? 
So we're going to make it very simple. I'm going to try to take 500 years of misinformation. Well, I should go back to the fourth century. 1,500 years of false information that has come down through church history that people have blindly accepted and it has wrought and is wreaking terrible havoc in the church. It creates confusion, it creates doubt, it creates fear, it creates uncertainty, and that's not what it's intended to do. So let's make it very simple. I like to teach on a level of about a 10-year-old kid. That's because that's about my mentality level. So I hope that I can make it simple for you. And we're going to start with the first time election occurs in the Bible. And we're going to get into the doctrine of hermeneutics. And the doctrine of hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. And I'm going to give you a few guidelines that uh, are helpful to follow when we study the Bible. But one of them is what we call the law of first mention. And the law of first mention is when a word occurs in Scripture for the first time, it's a good idea to get an idea what it's saying because that's going to set the tone and the trend throughout the rest of Scripture. So here we are in Isaiah 42, the first use of election. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. This is God the Father speaking. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Who is Isaiah speaking to? Well, the church wasn't in existence yet. The church didn't exist until the day of Pentecost. So therefore, he's obviously not speaking to the church. He is speaking to the nation of Israel. And to the nation of Israel who were very impressed because they were the elect. And he tells them that the only reason they have any election is because of their relationship to the elect one. If the state, the nation of Israel was elect, what were, the, what were they elect for? They were elect as a nation, called as a nation, certainly for many, many different things, but one thing stands out above all others, to bring the Savior into the world. So I want you to jot down the idea that the beginning of election is it only relates to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Election is about Jesus, not God in eternity past, picking some to go to heaven and picking others to go to hell, which is a false doctrine that comes straight out of the pit of hell. I hope if you're here as a Calvinist, you can bear with us or leave quietly. That is a false doctrine. And if you follow that doctrine to its logical conclusion, here's what you end up having. You have God as the author of sin. And they will openly admit, if you talk with those who are hardcore Calvinists, that is the end conclusion of their doctrine. God is the author of sin. Now, if you think that out, what you have in the work of Christ on the cross is God the Son dying for the sins of the Father. Try to figure that one out. Behold my servant. In other words, let's get our eyes off ourselves. Let's get our eyes off the theologians. Let's put our eyes where they belong. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. 
So that's the beginning idea of our calling. Jesus defines exactly what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1, 10, when he says, be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure. How can I know that I'm called? How can I know that I have a calling? You know, you often talk to people and you say, what is your calling? What are you talking about? Vocation. What is your vocation? What is your lifestyle? And we're going to find all of that out. But Jesus defines it for us. So turn with me to the second passage I want to show you in Matthew chapter 22. So many of these issues are dealt with in some such simple terms in the Bible. Matthew 22, a parable with a great lesson. If you read the context, the chief priests and the Pharisees are trying to kill him. So in verse 1 of Matthew 22, Jesus answered and spoke to them. By the way, oftentimes when it says Jesus answered, they didn't ask him any questions. He answers when no one asks a question. Because he's dealing with the condition of their soul. He's dealing with problems that they have within the heart and within the soul. And he says in verse 2, and by the way, who is he talking to? He's talking to the leaders of the elect nation. Okay? God's chosen people, as we say. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. I want you to underline that one. Not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. This is the heart of God the Father pleading with this people, Come and join the wedding. Come and be a part of the celebration. Verse 5, they made light of it. They went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. Are you beginning to see a historical par parallel to this parable? He's talking about the prophets and how they were treated by the people of Israel. Verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. What do we have here? We have a prophecy of exactly what happened in 70 A.D. The parable is against them. They are the ones who rejected. They are the ones who were not willing to become a part of this marvelous wedding feast. And therefore, after they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ 40 years later in 70 AD, Titus the Roman came down and surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was devastated. And three years later, the Jews at Masada committed suicide rather than be killed by the Romans, and the nation of Israel ceased to exist. It was wiped from the face of the earth as a nation. So what did the king do? Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. By the way, why were they not worthy? Did they not have good enough clothes? not drive a nice enough car, not live in the best part of town, weren't a part of the upper crust of society. 
What was it that made them unworthy? Their rejection. Their refusal to answer the call. So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. You, you realize that all Gentiles are bad in the eyes of the Jews, right? When Isaiah said, my elect one is going to bring salvation to the Gentiles, can you imagine how shocking that must have been to the Jewish people? Maybe that's why they took Isaiah and according to tradition, we believe that he was put in a hollow log and sawed in two, slowly killed. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. This troubles a lot of believers. But Jesus likes to talk about specifics for specific things. There was a man there that did not have a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does he conclude his parable? Many are called, but few are elect. The word chosen is elect. The words that are used here are the same in the original language as the words that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1.10. Make your calling and election sure. Exact same words. Many are called, but few are chosen. Let's do a little bit of a mental exercise. How do you get chosen? Anybody have an idea? How do you get chosen? You answer the call, right? Everyone was invited. Some were not willing, and because they were not willing, they were unworthy. And the others, the lame, the halt, the blind, the maimed, the diseased, they said, a wedding feast I haven't eaten in a week. Man, they couldn't get there fast enough. That's you and I. We answered the call, and Jesus said, the call goes out to all, but not everyone answers the call. And therefore, those who answer the call are the elect. Do you know why we're elect? Because Jesus is elect. He is the elect one. And unless you understand what that means in relationship to him, chosen by God the Father <clears throat> to lay aside his heavenly road, step down into a world of sin, sorrow, and suffering, go to the cross for the entire world to die for every member of the human race, to pay the penalty for our sins so that the call could go out, come to the wedding feast. We're elect because we are in him. If you read Ephesians, Paul makes that very point. In Ephesians 1 and verse 4, we are elect in him from before the foundation of the world. Do you realize how united you are with Jesus Christ? The Bible calls us his body, refers to us as his bride. Is there any sense in which an omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning could not know everyone in Christ from before the foundation of the world simply by knowing his son, it would be inconceivable. So I hope that Jesus helps define maybe a little more uh, in your mind 
the idea of election and calling. Turn with me one last passage and we'll get into 2 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's very interesting to me how much Peter has the calling of God on his mind. Uh, if you go through 1 and 2 Peter, I forget how many references there are. I think there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine or ten times he refers to election and calling in his first and second little books. It's very important to him. And as we read 1 Peter chapter 1, we find out that not only does our media lie to us, but sometimes so do our scholars. Sometimes our scholars are dishonest. And the problem is, if you get a preconceived idea in your mind and you accept that preconceived idea, everything you approach in Scripture, you're going to make it fit your preconceived idea. And that's exactly what they've done here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Read with me verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the diaspora, the Greek from dia, spiro. Spiro means to sow seed. Dia means throughout. It means to sow seed throughout the field. To the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Who were these people? They were people who had been scattered from the early persecution under Saul of Tarsus. You'll remember the story in Acts chapter 8 when Saul yet breathing out fire and threats against the church was hauling people in and causing them to be put in prison and put to death. And it says, then those who were in Jerusalem, these are people that just had come to Christ in the short time since Pentecost, were scattered everywhere. Same word for scattered as we have right here. We look at it as a terrible thing. God sees it as an opportunity. I'm sowing seed. I'm scattering seed throughout the field, and these people have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor to do what? To carry the gospel. To who? They're living among the Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? And then verse 2 says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Where is the problem? Well, the problem is that the word elect doesn't go in verse 2. And it has nothing to do with salvation. Some would find that shocking. If I read it to you as it is in the Greek, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect pilgrims of the dispersion. To the elect pilgrims. Grammatically, in form, elect and pilgrims is referring to the same people. And what it's telling these people who have lost their homes, lost their businesses, some of them may be lost family members and have been scattered from their home into a strange and alien land, you're not there by accident. God has sown you as seed and he chose you to be in this place, in this time, for his purpose. That's called a calling. 
to the elect pilgrims of the dispersion. Notice, according to the foreknowledge of God, God knew before the beginning of history exactly what would happen with them, where they would be, what their circumstances and surrounding situations would be, and he had a perfect plan for it. I want you to try to get this in your mind. You were not born 100 years ago because God could not have used you to fulfill his plan 100 years ago. I'd like to have been born 100 years, maybe 200 years ago. I'd love to have been back in the mountain man era. That would have been a great time to be alive. You know what? Why didn't God put me in on this earth at that time? I could not have fulfilled his eternal plan, which he designed for me, who he knew in Christ before the world began in 1820. And my circumstances and my situation, my parents, my lineage, my birth, coming into the world at this time, every little bit of it is organized and arranged by God so that I can fulfill a calling. And it's the same for you. Notice, though, not just elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, we might think that this is referring to salvation, but it's not. And how do I know that it's not? Because he further amplifies it. You see, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are sanctified forever by the Holy Spirit. But is that the end of sanctification? Obviously not. We are to grow in our sanctification. The idea of sanctification meaning purification, being set apart unto God. And what Peter is telling these people is, it's not an accident that you got driven from your homes. It's not an accident that you have been driven into Asia Minor. It's not an accident that you are now facing hardships and difficulties. It's all a part of the plan of God because the Spirit of God wants to use these circumstances to purify your lives for, what does he say here at the end? for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, any Jew, the minute you use the phrase, and we find it again in the book of Hebrews, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that is not talking about salvation. Because they understood that the sprinkling was something that was done to purify that which was already there. When a sacrifice was brought to the altar, Every time the sacrifice was made, the blood of the sacrifice was taken and sprinkled on the altar of sacrifice, on the altar of incense, on the tabernacle, all of that which had already been sanctified to purify it once again for this individual sacrifice. What would a Jewish Christian in the first century think of when you talk about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, possibly the dedication of the priests? You remember that the priests were sprinkled with the blood as they were initiated into their priestly ministry? And that the sprinkling of the blood was something that they then continued to carry on to each and every individual who came to them to offer a sacrifice to bring them back into fellowship with God and union with their community of faith. What Peter is trying to tell these folks, and these are the same people he wrote 2 Peter to, is God has a plan for your life. I want to summarize it in simple terms. 
You and I were born into the family we were born in because God knew the right place, the right time to be able to fulfill a magnificent plan in your life. You are not insignificant. You are not uh, an afterthought by any stretch of the imagination. You are a person loved by God. The value of your life was shown by Christ when he died for you on the cross. And he didn't just die to give us eternal life. He died, certainly, to enter us into his family, but to use us in a magnificent way. Whether you realize it or not, you are a Christian warrior. Whether you realize it or not, you live on a battlefield. And whether you realize it or not, God has no plan for your defeat. His plan is always for victory. And victory may not look like we want it to look like because many of these Christians were persecuted, hounded, hunted, and in time slaughtered under persecution. That looks like losing to the world. That looks like winning to God. So it's very important that we understand the divine perspective as we now turn to our text, which I've almost used my time up. 2 Peter chapter 1. There are three steps in chapter 1 for us to confirm our call in the election. And those three steps are we answer the inward call in verses 1 through 4. We answer the outward call in verses 5 through 9. And we answer the upward call in verses 10 through 22. You see, when God called you and I to come to faith in Christ, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me all you who labor under heavy laden. Can I ask you a question? Is there any member of the human race that doesn't fall into that category? Come to me all of you. And I will give you rest. It's a gift. That gift of rest is a gift of the assurance that you are a child of God, delivered from your sins, imputed with the righteousness of Christ, on a pathway into an eternal kingdom, but between the cross and the crown, there are things that God has for you to do that no one else can do. You are so unique. You are so special. We're always trying to make people feel special. Listen, there's nothing that's more special than being a believer in Jesus Christ in the plan of God that he designed specifically for you from before the world began. Why am I on this earth? For what reason has the God of heaven chosen to place me here at this time? Well, if I don't know, it's going to be very hard for me to confirm my calling. So that's what 2 Peter is going to teach us. Simon Peter, verse 1. The Greek literally reads Simeon Peter, which is very interesting because we only find that used in Acts 15 uh, and verse 14 as they're talking about the issue of those who have been scattered by persecution. How interesting is it? All of the little lines of Scripture that come together and, and tie in tight little knots to help us not lose our direction and our mooring. Simeon Peter, he's talking to Jews. He uses a Jewish title or his Jewish name, Simeon, rather than the Greek, Simon. 
Simeon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, get this, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. All right. What do we have in these first four verses? Well, we have the inward calling, and the first thing that we notice is that it comes through delegated authority. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle. The highest office in the church is the office of apostleship. And the higher the office, the greater the servant. You remember Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room as they were arguing over who was going to be the greatest. And we see this happen so often in churches and in Christian circles. You know, this this jockeying for position, this attempt to, to get recognition and so on and so forth. And Jesus said, look, the leaders of the Gentiles, this is how they work. We could say that the people in Washington, that's their tactic. That should not be our tactic. He said, I am among you, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all that exists, the savior and the redeemer of the world. I am among you as one who serves. The greater the authority, the greater the calling, the greater the accountability to be a servant, to be a slave. And that is what Peter is. So while the call comes from great authority, it also, in the person of Peter, gives us a great example of humility and service. Notice, secondly, it is an offer of free grace received by faith. To those who have obtained, the word obtain is lacano, and it's a word that means to receive a free gift. To simply reach out the hand of faith as the hand of God's grace stretches out to you, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. I know that people will tell you, and I know these guys sell millions of books, and they make millions of dollars, and people want to follow them, but the gift is not your faith. When he says that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, it does not refer to faith. It cannot grammatically and it cannot contextually. The that refers to the salvation which is mentioned earlier, for which reason there's a little parenthesis that says, by grace you are saved, so that later on when he comes down to verse 8 and says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that by grace being saved, is not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God. Am I making any sense? Some of you are looking at me like I have three heads. You know, most of the times our mistakes in Scripture are because we think we're too intelligent. We start overthinking the passages instead of letting the Spirit of God speak. So we know that it is a gift that is offered from the highest authority. The highest authority that ever existed on the human race is apostleship. 
Forget Caesar and all the rest of them. And the offer is an offer of free grace. It's received by faith, and you'll notice that it's received from the Father and the Son involving position, power, and potential. You have those in your notes. What does it mean that you have received a like Precious faith. I'll tell you what it means. It means that you and I and any other person, high or low in the Christian realm, any other believer who has ever lived, you can name Martin Luther, you can name John Wesley, you can name John Calvin, you can name anybody you want to name in all of Christian history. Here's the point Peter wants you to understand. You have the equal privilege, equal position, and equal power with any of them. No one starts the Christian life with an edge over anybody else. All of us are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't get any better than that. All of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get any more powerful than that. All of us have been given a spiritual gift to accomplish something in life, and it doesn't get any more personal than that. So it is a like precious faith and we got it because we received it as a free gift of God it is a rich treasure the third thing that we notice is that the gift of eternal life contains the power for spiritual growth Peter's concern when he writes to believers is that they grow spiritually as a matter of fact, he's going in this book the way he begins the book by saying, beware lest you stumble from your own steadfastness, but keep on growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He bookends the whole book with the thrust of his message, with the burden of his soul, believers, children of God, members of the body of Christ, you have two options in life. You're either going to fall down or you're going to climb the mountaintop. That's your only two options. To fail to climb the mountaintop is to fall. And we don't want to fall. How tragic, how sad to have been given the gift of such riches that we have been given. What Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3 is all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That is possession. That's treasure. And then to be told that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You may feel like a nothing now, but I want to tell you, in heaven you are seated with Christ. You're a celebrity in heaven. Did you know that? The angels stand by in admiration as they observe what God has done for us. Now the question is, what are we going to do with it? Because between the time I believed in Jesus Christ in 1965 and the time I stand before his presence, I'm not just here biding my time and I'm not just here twiddling my thumbs. I have a calling that I need to confirm. And that should motivate us. And that's why Peter uses the word diligence so often. Be all the more diligent. In other words, light yourself on fire. Stop trying to be cool. Start trying to be hot and get on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. We notice also as this gift contains power for great spiritual growth that Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied. You know, God's a great mathematician. When you and I believe in Jesus Christ, he subtracted all our sins. 
He then did the greatest work of addition. He added to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So all of our sins have been taken away. The righteousness of Christ is in place to our account in a moment of time, in a split second, when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that's only the beginning. Now the multiplication begins. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. The more grace you and I are willing to receive, the greater the peace that we're going to have. And why do we need that? Because we live in a troubled, tear-stained, hurting world. And the world needs to look around and find somebody who's standing on solid ground. That's you and I. And you notice that grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God. And the word knowledge is a word that means something above what we call head knowledge. It's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough to just read it. It's that I have heard it. I've learned it. And now I'm putting it into practice. Through the knowledge. You know, you can ask someone, how much do you know about the Bible? And they can say a lot, but you ask them, how much do you know about God? How much do you actually know about Jesus Christ? What is your relationship with Jesus Christ worth? What effect has your relationship with Jesus Christ made in your life today? When we answer those questions, it begins to tell us where we're really standing. The fourth thing I want to point out from these four verses is that spiritual growth lays hold of God's power through his word. You'll notice that he says that his divine power has given us everything that relates to life and godliness. You tell me that you're an addict. By the way, all of us are naturally addicts. Okay. Hi, I'm Gene. I'm an addict. Hi, Gene. Okay. If our churches were more like AA meetings, we'd probably get a lot more accomplished. Instead of waltzing in like, oh, I got the world in the palm of my hand. Everything's good. And to be honest with you, I used to lie like this all the time. How you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. The Lord's plan's great. I'm in the word. Everything's great. No, sometimes life is just, can I say this in church? Crappy. And sometimes it hurts. And sometimes our hearts are broken. And sometimes we feel like we... We can't even reach up to get out of the hole that we're in. And you know what? It's okay to be honest about that. Because some of the greatest people that are recorded in Scripture are people who got so mad at the way things were going in their life. Look at Job. Look at Jeremiah screaming to the heavens saying, Why didn't you kill me before I was born? Why, why wasn't I a stillborn? Why, why, why didn't my mother abort me before birth? My life hurts. And God let him throw his tantrum, and then he said, okay, now you're ready to pick up and move on? Because you haven't solved anything. You haven't changed anything. You haven't made anything better. All of us have an addictive personality to something. And it may not be drugs, and it may not be alcohol, and it may not be gambling, but it may be sex, or it may be arrogance, or it may be self-promotion, or it may be look at me and look at who I am and what I've done, but we all are addicted to something. Find what you're addicted to that's contrary to the plan of God for your life 
and you will have entered into your own personal battleground. Now it's time to take up the belt of truth, the sandals of the gospel, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. Now you want to be a Christian warrior, go to war against your own addiction. That's when the battle really starts. Because some addictions are really easy to cover up. One of them is called slander, maligning, running other people down, finding fault with everyone. Oh, it's so easy to find fault with everyone around us. But guess what? They're finding fault with us too. If you ever have someone honest enough to tell you the fault they find with you, it might make it a little harder to find fault with everybody else. So we go to battle against our own areas of weakness, our areas of sin, our areas of addiction. Why? So that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Say, wait a minute, I thought I already was. I'm in Christ, I have the righteousness of Christ, I'm a child of God by faith. That's all true. But that's all positional. That's, that's you, seated with Christ in the heavenly place. In the eyes of God, you're as good as Christ. Did you know that? I asked you this question last time I was here. How many of you think God loves you? Everybody raised their hand. I said, how many of you think God likes you? And the hands went down. Because we don't understand God. He didn't love you and dislike you. He loves you because you are precious in his sight. He loves you with the love that can only be valued by the sacrifice of Christ in your place. It doesn't get any greater than that. that we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. That's talking about something that's already happened. We have already escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now the challenge is, am I going to take on, in the years that are left to me, the days that are left to me on this earth, am I going to take on the divine nature? Am I going to begin to reflect Jesus Christ. You know, when we measure ourselves against others, we can look really good. When we measure ourselves against the Son of God, it's a little bit harder to be proud. That's the standard that God sets for us and what He wants for each and every one of us as we overcome our own faults, our own flaws, our own failures. He wants us to begin to shine in a very dark world with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you're not discouraged because it would be very easy to look at that and say, I can't do it. But you know what? If you're here tonight and you're saying, I can't do it, I'm going to tell you, you're absolutely right. You can't do it. It's impossible. But God can do it in you. And that's the whole plan. <clears throat> However, there's a little catch. He won't do it without our cooperation. He wants it to be a teamwork. He wants it to be a partnership. And here's his plan. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure when we started, but I'm going to go just about five more minutes and I'm going to give you a break. Would you read with me verses five through nine? 
Also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now get this. You might say at this point, I don't know what all those mean, that's okay. We're gonna sort it out. This is what I want you to get. If these things are yours and abound, or some of your translations will say, if these things are yours and they keep increasing, and that's a good translation. The idea is that you keep adding to them. You will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to the point of blindness, and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. Could I suggest to you that there are two kinds of believers in the world today? There are believers who are adding these qualities to their life through struggle, through difficulty, yes, through failure many times, through disappointment, but adding, getting knocked down, getting back up, getting exhausted, weary, feeling like throwing in the towel, but somehow getting back up and starting back up that mountain because what you have in verses five through eight is the mountain that you and I are supposed to climb. That's the mountain, we're, and it's a mountain. Every one of those qualities is like another peak. Have you ever noticed when you start up a mountain, you think you can see the top and you say, oh man, we're almost there. And you get to that top and find out, no, that was just a, a little minor peak leading to the bare peak. So you start pressing on, you start climbing. You say, oh, there it is. I'm almost there. You get there and you look up and it's still towering above you. And that's what we have in these qualities. But we're either climbing the mountain or we're barren and unfruitful. Barren and unfruitful. Why would any Christian indwelt by the Spirit of God, eternally saved by the grace of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, with a plan and a purpose designed for them by a loving Heavenly Father, by the way, His plan is the thing that we may least want to do and the thing that will most fulfill our soul. I prayed two things when I became a Christian. God, I will do anything you want me to do except you know that that's the joke, right? That's the punchline. That's when God starts laughing. Oh, look down there. I'll do anything you ask except don't take me to China and don't make me a preacher. And I'm sure there was a great laugh in heaven. As he said, you're going to do them both. And you know what? How foolish, how ignorant, how arrogant for me to even think that I could tell God what would fulfill my soul. I live to teach the word because being here, going through this, I'm not gonna try to impress you, but you ask my wife how many hours, how much blood, sweat, and tears goes into just the notes that you get and this is two weeks after I just did a conference, which was less than a week after I just did a conference, which is now 10 days before I do another conference or two weeks before I do another conference, which is a couple of days before I take off for India. And you know what? I absolutely love it. I wouldn't do anything else. 
I can't think of anything else that will fulfill my soul. And I'll tell you why. Here's the secret. You know who God calls to be preachers? He calls the worst. He calls the ones that can't succeed anywhere else. I'm not talking about jobs and, and work. I'm talking about in the spiritual realm. Because you know why? He says, you are going to need some special remedial treatment. And the only way that I'm going to get you into the scripture to study hard enough and deep enough is if I put you in a place where you have to teach other people and sound like you at least know what you're talking about. So open that Bible, stick your nose in it, and live in it every day and dig out all the little gems that you can find. And while maybe you're helping a few other people, maybe you'll be helping yourself. What an amazing plan. I am far from where I expected to be at this point, but spiritual growth that we may become partakers of the divine nature. We're going to look at what the divine nature involves, but I want to close with this statement. The goal of spiritual growth, the goal of spiritual growth is to be more like Jesus Christ. To be more like Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate battle. And Peter is going to give us some stepping stones so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. We're going to look at him in the next hour, take a break. The ladies and the folks here have put out some marvelous food back there. Help yourselves. So many of you look like you need to add a few pounds. You look like you're starving away. Um, make their labor and their offering worthwhile. Father, we're thankful for your grace. Guide us as we fellowship together around the marvelous provisions that ladies in this church have made. Thank you for this church. Put your hedge of protection around it. Guide novice father as I know his heart beats to serve you. I know his heart beats to draw your people closer to you, and I just pray uh, that you will draw people into this church. There are churches everywhere, big churches, new buildings going up, but Father, where the word of God is taught, it's a hard thing to find. So we're praying, Father, that you will just continue to bless the ministry here and bless uh, novice as he leads the people in your word. Bless our break now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.